Welcome to the Sandpaper Podcast from the Postmark Group. It's been our pleasure to produce this little series of video podcasts to show you who we are and what we're up to. In our second episode, we talk mass timber with Leon Plett of RJC Engineers. What is mass timber? Why is it so important? And why is it becoming more than a buzzword? Leon is a force for positive change within our industry and a creative thinker who really knows his stuff. So we're going to go way, way, way back. And I see some Lego there. Sure. So yeah. when, when, did, when did Leon know that he was going to be a, a structural engineer? That is, that's a good question. I think I really knew when I was in grade seven. I don't know if, you know, I think we might be about the same age. I don't know if you remember taking those standardized aptitude tests in grade seven. Yes. Uh, when I took the standardized aptitude test, I scored really well in, in spatial reasoning and mathematics. Um, and the thing that came out top for me was engineer. And at the time, honestly, I didn't know what an engineer was. Uh, so I, I looked it up and I was immediately intrigued. And I think from that day, I knew that I wanted to be an engineer one day. I took I took a sideways path into engineering. I, I didn't definitely didn't take a straight shot into engineering, but uh, but that that's when I knew what I really wanted to do. I've tried a few different things before I actually got into my engineering career. Um, I started my own business when I was 18, while I was still in high school. So I started a I started a retail bookstore. I know totally totally opposite of engineering. I started a retail bookstore in a local shopping mall in southern Manitoba. I did that for a few years. Um, financially, it was very difficult with the big box stores opening and that sort of thing. So I took a job as a roofer. And I worked as a roofer for five years um, while still maintaining the bookstore for a little while during that time. And then while I was roofing, I just, you know, I came to the realization that I, you know, I, my body couldn't take that sort of manual labor for the rest of my life, nor was it the thing that I wanted to do. And I, you know, I'd always still wanted to be involved in engineering. So I went to the community college in Winnipeg and got a civil tech diploma. Um, did really well, you know, top of the class. I actually got the Governor General's Award at Red River. That's amazing. Um, and decided to go on and get my degree. So I, I went on and got my degree at Lakehead, uh, got an offer at RJC. I actually applied in Calgary, so I, I applied in Alberta. That was my intention was to work in engineering in Alberta. You know, if you... If you uh, grew up during a certain time in southern Manitoba, all of your uncles spent some time in construction in Calgary. It was just a, everybody in my family spent some time during the booms working in Calgary. Um, so I, I applied to RJC. I knew about the company. I was it, it was number one choice for me to work in engineering in Canada for RJC. Uh, applied in Calgary. Unfortunately or fortunately, got an offer in Victoria instead, and just never looked back. Yeah, you That's hit amazing. the. So that 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 was my path. Yeah. But that's that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. 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 So so I got a question. What was the name of the bookstore that you had? It was called Writings. 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 I like it. With a yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It was uh I I uh I, I learned an important lesson during the time, which is I'm the kind of person that uh really likes new ideas and starting things off. And I sometimes have trouble with the uh, with the ongoing maintenance phase of a project. I, I prefer the beginning phases. Mm -hmm. Engineering is fantastic that way. I'm not a building maintenance person. You know, I get to I get to work on the fun phase of a project and, and get it designed and into construction. And then I get to move on to something new and exciting. So my my sort of short attention span works a lot better for the work I'm doing now than it did in retail. In uh, in Postmark, that's what we call the visionary. Uh, that yeah. that's Amos's role. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a bit of a knock, Becky, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need. You know, it takes a village. It takes a village. If we all had the same set of skills and personalities, it wouldn't be fun to be on a team for one. No, and we wouldn't be very effective. So totally. it, it takes all of us. Yeah, yeah. and I sure. I think that's why Becky and I work so well together. Yeah, we're opposite. Uh, yeah, we are definitely opposites in that, yeah. that way. Because she pushes me to make sure that idea is bulletproof. And then I'm like, okay, here you go, Becky. Run with it. You go next. Good, good job. Good. Yeah. It's your problem now. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I guess that's kind of a good good segue into, you know, how, maybe how you got into to Mass Timber, that, that innovative, you know, new way of new way of building, um, I, I, I guess, you know, yeah. it's solving, maybe solving, maybe talk about, you know, the, the problem that you see 
um, with current building and, and, and that solution that, that Mass Timber might bring to, to solve that problem? Sure. I think that's a, that's a really broad and open-ended I know, question, it's perfect. Famous, but I'll, I'll try to tackle it bit by bit a little bit and, yeah. and feel free to kind of step in and redirect as I, as I ramble on. <laughs> For sure. Um, been involved in timber projects since the beginning of my career. So, so, you know, with my background growing up on a farm and with uncles in construction, you know, I've always been around construction. I've always been comfortable with, with wood frame design and smaller projects and, and working in an engineering firm, you know, a, a large engineering firm, but with a smaller office on the island. We, t we take on projects of every sort of size. And so we, we've been working on wood frame projects for 20 years on the island, at least probably before then. Um, and, and mass timber is, is something that really caught on. It you know started in, in Western Canada in terms of its its uh, genesis in, in North America. In BC, we are we are at the hub of that, and so we have some some great engineering organizations, contractors, manufacturers. That whole industry really really uh, broke out in in BC. So so proximity is the key. We we we've been close to those manufacturers and those projects. Um, and then add, add on to that the familiarity with the materiality and the, and the way of designing. It's very different than designing in steel or concrete. Uh, and, that, and that's worked out to sort of guide a lot of the work that I've done in my career. Interestingly, what, the first real mass timber project that I worked on uh, was a project built in the late 1900s, or the, sorry, the late 1800s. Uh, um, there's a, there a six-story mass timber building in Victoria, uh, originally built as a warehouse. Um, and we did a seismic upgrade for that project in about 2008. Microsoft Canada was actually headquartered in there for a little while. Um, and it, it performed amazingly. And I think the learning through the process of performing a seismic upgrade for a 120-year-old mass timber building, it really helped to solidify the, the durability and the potential for timber projects. And then when you start to learn about the manufacturing capacity for being able to do panels, and we learn about the environmental benefits of sequestering carbon inside those trees. It, it, just, it just all starts to make so much common sense. Um, and then add, add on to that even the, the beauty of it. You know, I, I obviously have an appreciation for concrete and steel buildings and seeing the structure and all of that. But a, a mass timber building where you can see the, see the wood fiber inside your, your finished suite or inside your office, that the sort of warmth and natural beauty of that is amazing. And I, it, it's not surprising at all to me that it's catching on. Yeah, it's no, really not. It seems obvious for sure. Like I, I think um, I think it was Michael Green, maybe in one of his TED talks. Um, I, th I think it was is something around the lines of, um, "Have you ever you know walked into a you know a steel or concrete building and, and wanted to go hug a, uh, a a concrete column?" And that's that's definitely not the case. But you when you walk into a a wood building and you see a well maybe for me but... yeah yeah exactly for us nerds out there and you see a massive column like you you know you yeah. got to appreciate that but um it's it's that warmth yeah. and that's you know it's there's absolutely there's that that human nature that human connection you know you know we've we've talked about this uh yeah. with postmark you know that mindful and biophilic aspects of it are are, are very important and we want to bring that back and you know that's that's one of those big benefits of of mass timbers, we can show it off, and it is it is warm um, and inviting and, and biophilic, yeah. so that's great. But and, but like back to that Microsoft um, sure. project, I think that uh, I was listening to a podcast a little while ago uh, because Microsoft just completed um, a mass timber build down in California, I believe, um, and yeah. and the reason they went that route was because of their building in Victoria, was my understanding. Oh, really? I, I didn't know there was that connection. I, I do know that we have a local Vancouver Island contractor that's helping on that project. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, but I didn't know there was the connection to the to the to the dogwood building in Victoria. Yeah, like there that's was, really um, cool. you know, they j just seeing those benefits and, and really now seeing, you know, a lot of the recent studies on on productivity um, increases and people actually wanting to come into work and, and that sort of thing, just because, the you know, the designs allow for, you know, a better space, um, healthier space. So yeah, kind of mm -hmm. kind of interesting that that connection and and BC really has yeah. been that hub. Yeah. So Leon, what is mass timber? The, the definition the definition changes a little bit depending who you're talking to. You know, mass timber can be it, it could be as simple as saying anything that's that's made of you know large dimensional wood. You know, anything that's made of bigger wood pieces than your typical two by four, two by six that you're used to seeing in in what we would call stick frame projects. 
And so that includes everything from glue lamb beams to, to large scale timbers, et cetera. But I think more recently, when we, when we as an industry refer to mass timber, we're talking about panelized wood components. And those panelized wood components are built in, in specialty manufacturing facilities where they're layering up small pieces of wood to make larger panels or beams or columns. Um, whether that's glue lamb or CLT or DLT or NLT, all of those things are different ways to combine smaller timber into, into big pieces that we can use for larger buildings. CLT being the most common one that we talk about, with, which is cross laminated timber, which is alternating layers, alternating directions of smaller sort of two by four, two by six elements that are then glued together to form a large panel. Those panels are typically 10 feet by 40 feet or so, but they can be even larger. And using those components, obviously we have, we have a lot of structural capacity there because we have a lot of material and depth and spanning capacity, and we can design buildings that are, that are much larger and still built out of wood. We've also had changes to the code. This, you know, this goes beyond your question a little bit about what actually is mass timber, but we've had changes in the code recently that, that started in BC, growing, growing us from four-story maximum wood frame buildings to six-story, and then more recently on top of that to allow us to go mass timber buildings up to 12 stories in accordance with the code. And then outside of the code, you know, if we go alternative solutions and testing and, and other methodologies, we can go even taller than 12 stories, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, yeah that's that is, really cool. it is very exciting for the industry, for sure. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about um, mass timber being sort of like a carbon sink. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Sure. And, then, you know, stepping a little bit outside of my area of expertise, which is the, the, the structural capacities and the, the ways of designing, but it is, you know, it's, it's very well known, and I'm sure we can point to research, and you're probably talking to other experts in this field, but, but when a tree grows, it sucks carbon out of the atmosphere, right? A, a tree is a carbon-based life form. So as it's, as it's growing, it's, it's taking carbon from the atmosphere in the, in the form of CO2, and it's using that as the building blocks for its structure. And so as this tree grows, it's sucking all of this carbon out of the atmosphere and building it into the, into the bark and the wood fiber and the leaves. And then when we cut that tree down, and put it into a building, the, the difference there is if that tree falls down in the forest and decomposes, it releases all of that carbon back into the atmosphere. But when that tree is, is cut down, incorporated into a building and surrounded by a great building enclosure and it's designed to last for 60 or 100 or even more years, that carbon is, is permanently or, or temporarily sequestered inside the building, which is a great benefit to us, right? We're, we, we understand the impact of carbon in our atmosphere and trees are the thing, uh, you know, and algae and other things too, but trees are one of those things that are, that are actively sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And when we put it into a building, we're sequestering that carbon. Yeah, and, and Seamus, I, I know you know a bit more about this than me, but just because we're touching on this, like what, what type of trees are sourced for mass timber? Where is the wood coming from? Oh, and yeah, that, that's a really good clarification, Becky. We didn't really touch on that. Um, in BC, there's there's really it's all it's all softwood. So all of these panels in Canada are being built out of softwood, so fast growing trees uh, and and small diameter. So we're we're only using sort of two inch by four inch or two inch by six inch pieces to build up these mass timber panels. So fast growing species, smaller trees, um, eat, you know more managed forests is the material that's going into there. This isn't, this isn't slow growth, old growth, hardwood or softwood that's going into mass timber buildings. Yeah, yeah so more, more sustainable on uh, the forestry end of yeah, things as well. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Which is great. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, we've, we've had a lot of those questions about, you know, you know, you know, people giving us the gears about us cutting down all these trees um, and, and, and not saving forests. But um, at the end of the day, what is the only building product that we, that we have that we can grow. So it, it is sustainable. Yeah. I was going to actually share a story about the, about the fast growing trees when yes, I was, yeah, great. I don't even remember when it was. I was probably in grade seven or eight. Our family took a trip. Uh, so from Southern Manitoba down to California, we drove to California. And on part of that trip, we drove through Oregon and we drove through just many, many acres of what appeared to be, you know, small poplar trees, just growing clearly planted. And we, we talked to a local and asked what was going on. And these were purely, these were, these were planted by industry and, and rotated every seven years. So those trees grew to harvest in seven years because they're, they're watered and grown so quickly. And then they were used to make structural materials, plywood and OSB, et cetera. And so 
we can grow trees that are used for structures very, very quickly and repeatedly, which which I think is really cool. Yeah, that is amazing. So Becky, here's here's the postmark vision. We are going to have postmark forests. Right. So you need you need to get on that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard it. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um, yeah, maybe, maybe let's talk about like your first, um, you know, RJC's kind of that quiet leader in, in mass timber, you, you know, you guys really aren't that flashy, um, in what you do. I, I think you should be because the work you do is just phenomenal. Um, and, and more people should know about it. So, so maybe can you, can you talk about maybe your first project or your favorite project, um, so far with mass timber? Sure, I, sure I can. And I think, you know, I think it's been, RJC has been around for 74 years, I think now. You know, we're not, we, we've been around for a long time. We have this long history. We, we do great work and we have people at the forefront of, of their various areas of expertise. But you're right, we're not, we're not flashy enough. You know, and, and then this, including myself and the younger generation of leadership at RJC, it is our goal to be a bit more, you know, to celebrate ourselves a little bit more and get out there a little bit more. But that's never been, you know, that's never been sort of uh, at the core of our DNA. And, and so we're, we're working to change that. But we are also really proud of our history. We, we, uh, we get great work because we do great work. And as we do more and more great work, we get more great work. And we build relationships with clients and, and projects and we gain expertise. And that's, you know, that incremental improvement is, is always been the way of RJC. So we don't, we definitely don't want to lose that. Um, for me, for me personally, uh, my you know my work in mass timber has been more on the heels of some of our some of our experts in the Vancouver office. Um, Grant Newfield in our Vancouver office is, you know, he's our he's our more technical mass timber leader and sits on the code committees and is doing the research and and is really on the forefront that way. Um, for myself, it's been more project related rather than research related, and so I've taken opportunities to to. To get to use mass timber on projects sort of as early as we can. My, my first mass timber project I think was probably started in 2007 which was the Brentwood College Visual Arts building. Uh, really exciting project with Christine Lintot as the architect. Uh, amazing vision for the project. Um, it's a two, two and a half story building at Brentwood College, beautiful campus on the ocean really wanted to celebrate timber and, and it has this amazing undulating roof of of uh, glue lamb rafters and and panels over top and then the really interesting thing there is is we used structural glass as part of the trusses for the roof and so the, the roof is this combination of mass timber and structural glass and it just it's it's really amazing it's one of those projects where you know i just remain really proud of our work on the project and the whole team i know the school was really happy with it um, and, you know, the, the relationships that we made with, with the architect and the construction team through that process have lasted my whole career. Um, and it's amazing what a, what, a, what a groundbreaking project can kind of make happen for, for a team that way. And, and, and I think that really, you know, maybe there was a spark there before that project, but I think that, that project probably lit the fire that said, you know, we really love working in, with wood and we want the chance to do that as much as we can. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Like being that early on, you know, in like in your career with, with Mass Timber, like what were some of the challenges you found with that project? And if people haven't seen that, uh, definitely Google it because it is, it is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. The, the, the biggest challenge on that project, um, you know, there there was a supply challenge. This was before one of the one of the interesting things about the project was it was at the at the sort of beginning as well of the industry using three D building modeling technology a little bit more. And so we were we were on a team that was willing to use Revit and BIM to deliver the whole project, but a number of us, you know, and and including including us in that, were a bit slower on the BIM adaptation or adoption, I should say. Um, and so learning to learning to use a material that wasn't used in that way with with the glass, especially and, and all the curves and the complex geometry and doing that all inside of a building model that we didn't have as much experience with. And then teaching the contractor to use the software to help with the shop drawing design and review and then the construction. That process was challenging, but it was also it also worked out really well. We had a very forward thinking contractor on the project, Navit Projects. 
they did a great job. You know, it, it was really cool in, you know, this is 15 years ago to go into the site supervisor's office and see him at his computer with the 3D model pulled up and he would ask his questions inside of the 3D model instead of, you know, rolling out the plans like an old school contractor. And so it, it was, that was the, the challenge and a good opportunity at the same time. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it's so funny because like, like you, that like that was cutting edge at that time because it's still considered like innovative now. Yeah. But you'd think over 15 years, yeah, like we we would see more people okay with that. But I but I feel like it's it's still a bit of a you know pulling teeth situation to get people to think you know outside the box or to think in this this 3D space. Do you have any, any comments on that? Yeah, I, I would say in, in my experience, it's not, it is very common now. I would say 90% of our projects are delivered in, in the BIM environment now. 10% uh, being, you know, maybe small architecture firms who, who haven't got up to speed with, with the larger software um, or renovation projects where all of the existing drawings are in CAD and we just want to keep working in CAD. Anything new and of a significant size, we're seeing it being done in a 3D environment. Yeah. We still have a long way to go to really have truly integrated models, et cetera. You know, our, our BIM models are still relatively simple, but that that's changing too. We, we've, we've had projects, for instance, in the last few years where we've skipped structural drawings altogether. We've produced no structural drawing sets. We've only worked in the 3D model together with the fabricator from day one. And the fabricator, in the case of a couple of these projects, it's steel fabricator, no reason we couldn't do it in mass timber though either is that they've built their fabrication model as the structural model from day one. And I, I really see that as an opportunity in the future to, to skip the whole, we have five different models and, it, and the errors that happen as we transfer from, you know, an initial conceptual SketchUp model to a Revit model, to a Tecla model for the manufacturer, to CAD works, to shop drawings. Each one of those steps involves an opportunity for some error and, and it's also doubling effort. Mm -hmm. and, and there's no reason not to, simplify and streamline that process yeah that is that is super fascinating that that would be um yeah r really cool to to test out m maybe on a postmark project <laughs> yeah <love> <laughs> um yeah some like uh, to to kind of segue into uh maybe let's talk a little bit about um the eddie project that that we're doing together uh sure. right now and yeah and your thoughts thoughts on that and 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 you know maybe some of the revit models and mass timber that we're that we'll be putting into this building I, I think I think it's really cool. The one of the things I really like about the Eddy is that it's you know there's nothing mandating to say that this project should be mass timber. It's it's mass timber because Postmark has a vision because they understand what because you guys understand what what clients want to see and what we can achieve structurally and architecturally with with a different product. Um, you know rather than just throwing up another six story or four story, you know, stick frame building at the least cost, we're going to do something special here. And that that's exciting for everybody on a design team. It's always exciting to do something that has a bit more meaning and a bit more impact than just a cookie cutter project. And so that that's the thing that I'm excited about. I'm excited about as we get to, you know, and there, there's been just like any project, there's the, the beginning stage, there's there's always going to be, you know, we're, we're going to veer one way and come back to center and veer the other way. And there's back and forth trying to find the right solution. And we want to do that before we really get into the details. But I'm really excited to, to dig into those details and really see how we can, you know, optimize spans for the panels that we choose, help the supply chain in terms of the detailing and the optimization of the panel sizes. Working with, you know, we've had a, it's been great working with Holoblock. I think that they, they've been very open-minded in terms of the feedback and back and forth. And that, I, I, what's fun for me in this, in, in this role and in the design process is getting to meet different people with the expertise and have those discussions. And everybody says, you know, every, everybody shares what, what they know. And when we gather all of that knowledge together, we get to do something really cool together. It's what we talked about sort of, I don't know if that was while we were recording, but whether it was before, but saying we, we need all sorts of different people and different personalities and expertise to do something successful. And the, the team on the Eddie has been that so far. And I'm really, I'm really hopeful and looking forward to what that looks like as we really get through detailed design as well. Yeah, it's uh it's, it is an exciting uh, project. And I feel like we, we really did put together 
and and maybe you know maybe it's luck uh we we put together a really good team um it's been a lot of fun it's been really collaborative um you know we were just speaking with uh Jamie Banfield the interior designer and he's just like you know says the same thing like the team has just been amazing uh to work with to do something special on this building um yeah well, like wh- what challenges have you seen so far on this on this project or if maybe there aren't any which would be great to the, hear. The challenges that's so far so far not so challenging structurally. You know, it's a it's a relatively small scale project for us. Um, I think ed- educating the the team around what are the what are the drivers in terms of use utilizing mass timber. You know, where do the how do the fire ratings, for instance, affect the areas that that might have different occupancies on the main floor? And thinking about Having different occupancies on the main floor affect the fire ratings above, which means we maybe need a thicker panel in this area because of fire ratings than we do in another area. And how does that affect, you know, a column grid and a beam grid and the layout of the units above? It, the complexity of how a building goes together in three dimensions is it's sometimes overlooked in the early stages of a project where you're focused on plans and layouts. And the team is looking at, okay, you know, what, how do the CRUs work on the main floor and how do the residential suites lay out? and not thinking about how those things stack and how do mechanical services get up and down and how does the access and circulation space work inside of that. And and on this project, we've seen a fair bit of back and forth about how does that work and as we respond to the site and the feedback from the community, um, dealing with parking challenges and excavation costs, all of that, it's, it's sort of typical, but I think I, I maybe I just overlook overlook how much action is really happening because I'm so used to it on the day to day on other projects. So it's not there's nothing extraordinary about it. It's it's normal. But you know if if someone off the street not involved in building design came and listened to our meetings, they would probably say this this is crazy. You know there, there's too many different moving parts. How do they understand where they're going to end up with? Yeah. But I I I think all of us have have seen it so much that we know where we're headed. And it's just the normal, it's just the normal back and forth. Yeah. And I like some of the ideas that have come to the table through those design meetings. And I think um, some of those ideas have definitely been driven by your expertise, Leon. Like, um, I know we had talked at one point about having like a fold down balcony. And was that something that we wanted to do? And then, you know, ending up, you know, with this building, which I think is just so cool in this, in this in this village that has a, an issue with parking and um, we're going to put in this, you know, stacking hydraulic parking system that like nobody on the island yeah. has seen, you know, it's not been done a lot in BC and just, you know, really driving that type of innovation in like this small little project, I think is just so cool. Yeah. There's, there's opportunities on a smaller mid-sized project that you don't have when you're doing something really large. You know, if, if you're if you're planning a 300 unit project, every little move you make is multiplied so many times that you you're almost forced to do something that's safe and has been done before mm-hmm. because you really have to limit the risk. Whereas in a project on a smaller scale, and this is you know we're in, it's not a single family home, it's it's bigger, so there are some implications, but there's a lot more room to be creative and make make moves. Then there is on something that you know is 40 stories and everything has to stack and you really have to make those super safe decisions it's i think it's right in the sweet spot where you get to be truly innovative and, and do something cool yeah we really do like this like what what we call or people call that that missing that missing middle that uh not not mass produced or mass stacked units but uh and we can when we can have some fun with it so what uh so far like what's what's your favorite part of the eddie uh, my favorite part of the Eddie, uh, I, I think my favorite part is uh, is the team. I keep saying this too, but I, I've, I've been really having a lot of fun working with you guys and with Roddy. Um, it's it's been a lot of fun. I'm I'm really enjoying the process. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, really cool to hear. Yeah. So, why do you think that uh, mass timber has become increasingly popular on the island in particular, and and in BC in general? Well, you know, as as we, as we talked about earlier, it's it's BC has been the nexus of the fabrication and testing and development in North America, and so that's one of the things. I think that we haven't people in BC have a little bit more tend to have a bit more care for the environment. You know, we we're surrounded by so much natural beauty. 
and it, it's sort of built into people in in BC and on the coast to to care about you know we're we're right by the ocean and we're we're surrounded by forests and mountains and we, we want to keep that pristine and beautiful and so that that care for the environment I think is the big driver and and when you learn about the impact of the cement industry on the environment and and the impact of, of buildings and long-term building maintenance and um, the, the heating and cooling costs, for instance, and you think about mass timber and all the advantages for reduced thermal bridging and carbon sequestration and, and renewable resourcing, all of that just, just leans towards it being uh, favored by, by buyers and builders in, in BC. Oh, that's awesome. Like, and, and you've obviously seen this with other developers and, you know, we've got our reasons for, for choosing uh, mass timber and we're, you know, I, I would, I would say we're maybe a bit of an outlier going with the size of buildings that, that we are. Um, but like, why are developers choosing mass timber? Like, is it cost? Is it speed? Is it being different? Like, what, like, I don't, I, I could, there's no way I could put percentages to that Seamus. It is, it's a little bit of everything. Um, one of our current projects is a 12-story mass timber market condo project right here in Victoria. Mm -hmm. That project is on very, very poor soils, some of the poorest mm -hmm. soils uh, in Victoria. Site class E, if you know, it's, it's the worst site class seismically, and so it attracts extremely large earthquake loads. And originally it was planned, and we, we've been working on the project with various owners for a decade, and originally it was planned as two concrete towers very conventional, very typical in Victoria. We have a robust concrete building uh, industry here. Concrete performs very well in an earthquake. There's lots of reasons why it was, you know, concrete was the, was the answer more conventionally. But when the code changed and permitted 12 stories of mass timber, we, we took a look at it with the current developer and said, if we build this building out of mass timber instead of concrete, we make the building overall 35% lighter. Um, you know, and, and when you knock a third of the weight off of a building, you knock a third of the seismic forces off of a building, and you need that many fewer caissons and anchors, and your transfer slab is that much thinner, so you have to dig that much less down into the poor soils, and it just penciled out, you know, it, it penciled out economically as, as about a break-even, even though the wood material cost more than the concrete slabs, with the savings in the seismic system and the foundations, it, it penciled out to break-even, and then the market research that happened said people would pay a premium for a, a beautiful mass timber suite over a, you know, run-of-the-mill concrete unit. And the, the sales have borne that out. You know, it's in pre-sales right now, and they're going amazingly well. People are drawn to the beauty of timber. They understand the story we're telling them about seismic safety and reduced load and ductility and all of those things that are, that are built into the timber structure. Um, and it just it just seems like a winner. So in that one, it was a combination of sales and economics. I think for for a number of developers that we work with, uh, care for the environment is really important, and and they understand you know it's not just important to themselves; it's important to to buyers. And and having the having a building with a lower carbon footprint makes sense. And so a, a lot of, we see a lot of interest in people because of that reduced carbon footprint. Um, but those, those would be the reasons I, I would say. So I guess it's the environment and, and uh, saving dollars that are the big drivers. Yeah. And I'm sure um, like, you know, be Becky on, on her end of things, it's going to make, you know, life a lot easier selling a beautiful mass timber building um, opposed to a, a white concrete yeah. box or, or something like that. Right. And, you know, we've been trying to wrap our head around, Absolutely. Like, you know, those areas of, you know, you know, how much carbon is actually being sequestered? Like, what is this actually doing for the environment? And and I think that end of things yeah. might be pretty, pretty early in the game, too, because, you know, you can say it, it does one thing, but how much does it actually benefit the environment, um, which which I find quite fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't have the stats top of mind, but I, you know, I know that you know, every every unit that you convert from, from concrete to mass timber, for instance, is the equivalent of taking X vehicles off the road for 10 years. Like there's there's a significant impact in building in, in timber versus versus concrete. Great, yeah. And so do you see like you do you see this trend continuing like outside of BC? Um like into the Absolutely. Yeah. Like how like how far is it gonna yeah. go? Like is Absolutely. it gonna overtake concrete? 
Well, that, that's a good question, Jameis. I, you know, everybody's aware of current lumber prices and, and what's happened here in the last few months. And that is, you know, it's just supply, just not keeping up with demand. And, and that goes for, for mass timber. You know, the impact hasn't been as big on mass timber because it is, you know, again, there's the advantage of using that smaller, less high quality material to build those panels. But we are, we've seen a huge increase in lumber prices. And so is there, is there a limited capacity to manage forests to, to meet the demand? I, I don't know the answer. My, my guess would be we're a long, long way from mass timber displacing concrete. We're always going to need concrete for things like blow grade structures um, and, and the podium structure, et cetera. It just, it doesn't make sense to do that in mass timber. I do think that we are going to, it's not going to take long before a significant number of larger buildings are being built in timber instead of concrete. I, I would love to see 10% of high rises go timber instead of concrete or steel. And I, I, I think we can get there. Like what, what height do you think mass timber ends up maxing out at? Is there like coming from, coming from the structural engineer side of things? Can we, can we recreate that <laughs> Lego building in, in the, in the back there? Well, well, we could, you know, we could go Empire State Building height in timber, but it would be a, it would be a hybrid system, right? You can't, you can't, it, it, timber just doesn't have the compressive strength to keep stacking that many floors and maintain capacity. So what you'd be looking at doing is uh, occasionally bringing the, that load back to the core or another structure. I know, you know, you mentioned Michael Green. He has, he has some prototype examples where, you know, we build a 40-story building. Every fifth floor is a, is a semi-transfer floor that takes some of that wood load back into a concrete or steel core. And so you're essentially building five stories of wood at a time, and then you're building something else. And so there, that's, that's a way to do it. The other thing is we're mostly talking about the limitations in, in timber have mostly to do with the with lateral force resistance for seismic and wind and for the gravity load carrying. For the floors itself, there's no reason the Burge Dubai couldn't have mass timber floors and concrete columns, for instance. So hybridized buildings, we, we can kind of do anything we want. If, if, we, if we go steel columns and mass timber floors, there's no reason we can't routinely build 40-story mass timber buildings where half of the structure mass is timber and half of it is concrete or steel. Oh, that's super exciting. What are some of the other limitations um, when you build with mass timber? The, the, one of the limitations and one of the advantages that I see, so the the disadvantage to things like steel and timber and the advantage of concrete is that concrete is a liquid when it arrives to site right. and so it can take any form that you want and so if we want to make a slab that's seven and a quarter inches thick and it's reinforced more in one direction than the other we can do that we can we can tune the structure to exactly what we need for the various forces with with mass timber we we have certain panels that we're limited to and we're actually really getting to the point we're really quickly getting to the point where we have more options for instance, a new manufacturer in BC, Klisnikov, out of Nelson, they can do custom panel layups. So they can do a custom panel that mixes different breeds and, and uh, sorry, different species and different capacities of lumber to tune the structure exactly what we need for certain spans. But you're still, you know, you're still building something in the factory that only has a few different possibilities. It can only be 10 feet wide. It can only be 40 feet long because we have to ship these pieces to site. Whereas in concrete, you can have a continuous slab 200 feet long because, again, it's being delivered as a liquid and, and it's poured into forms. So the, the limitations in the, in the components that you have, I think, are the biggest design limitation for us in that we, it's, it's very difficult to, to build two-way spanning systems. The CLT is generally limited to a, quite a short span in the, in the short spanning direction. Um, so I think it's it's the geometry that's the biggest challenge. It's, it's the geometry of the available materials that that limit us to being able to design uh, with more flexibility in mind. Yeah. The other one is connection. In steel, sorry, in steel, Seamus, you can you can weld you know you can weld a connection and shoot something off at an angle and weld it on there and it's it's like it's one piece of material. In wood, that's very difficult to do. You know, you you got to use a lot of screws and complicated steel hardware to make those sorts of connections. So there is a, there's a default to simplicity that's required when you're designing in mass timber. Yeah, I guess, which is a drawback and, and a benefit um, if, you, if you look at it on the other side too. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Can you talk uh, just to, just about kind of that offsite construction? Um, can you like we you know there are obviously those drawbacks of transportation and that sort of thing. But what are some of the benefits of of building something offsite? There's so many benefits. It 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 boggles me that we are still building buildings on site in 2021. Yeah. You know we we've been we've been trying to push towards offsite prefabricated manufacturer type construction for. I don't know, a hundred years, right? You used to be able to buy a Sears kit home yeah. that was manufactured somewhere just on a rail car and any homeowner could put that thing together on their site. And, and then we, we lost that for some reason. We, you know, people wanted things that were more complex or building industry changed, et cetera. And we've had all of these attempts to do more modular fabricated construction. And we, we all, I think we all recognize that it's the answer. You know, of course we should be building homes inside of a manufacturing facility that's dry and well lit and, and people don't have to commute down a muddy road to the site. Um, but it just, we, we haven't seemed to come up with the answer. And I, I don't know, I don't know whether it's because every building's a prototype and everyone wants their own design. You know, think, think about the Eddy. You know, here we have, we have an infill sort of missing middle kind of project in a smaller community the the design is if if we just said to the community hey we've got these modular boxes we're just going to stack you a four-story box of these things we designed we built them all over the country can you let us just stack this thing here that has no relationship to the community the answer would be no and so we we're, we're stuck as an industry between recognizing the the site that we want to build on and the community we're building in and the unique unique geotechnical conditions and access and site slopes and lighting and all of those things that architects do and wanting to build something super simple that we can manufacture in a you know warehouse somewhere I, I don't i don't know how we bridge the gap we our technologies come a long way you know we manufacturing we have we have additive methods now we could potentially 3d print things um, our fabrication and milling technology is amazing you know anybody can draw something on their computer and get it get it milled exactly perfectly and so there is, I'm sure there's a way to do it. It just hasn't happened. I, I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, one of those problems that, you know, we wrestle with as well internally. Like we've got, you know, grand, grand ideas of, um, you know, building what we call semi-modular, um, products and then, and then shipping them to sites and, and, you know, controlling that whole supply chain in that fashion. Um, but yeah, like, like the second you use the term, modular or you know boxes people you know back up against the wall i don't want that like i don't want that next to me i don't want a modular yeah. product next to me and so you know you maybe using the term you know semi-modular or you know off-site components and 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 making that construction site more of a an assembly site instead of a construction site maybe maybe that is the yeah. is the first step and, and something that we definitely want to explore and look into but yeah it, it baffles me that we kind of went backwards and and you know those sears homes and everything else i'm like that was like innovative like how did we lose that people are still living in those houses they were well well built houses the, the term i hear a lot that i that i that i gravitate towards is kit of parts is to think about mm. simplifying the structure and the, the building design so that we're working with a kit of parts so that we, you know, we we've optimized all of those elements that we can stack and clip them together, and there's there's enough room for there's enough room for making things individual on on any given site, but there's also a more seamless sort of design and fabrication process than we have right now. Um, yeah. um, okay, so Leon, now we're going to go into a few questions that we are planning to ask everybody on this podcast. So quick hitters, first quick hitters. Is, Okay. Quick hitters. There we go. If you had a billboard, no. Analogy. <laughs> um, what's a productive or impactful hobby or habit that you've picked up in the last 12 months? That, that's a good one. I, uh, what's productive or impactful? The, I think not necessarily anything new, but the, the pandemic has allowed me the sort of time to go back to some of the things that I really enjoy. Two of those being reading more. Uh, I, I love to read, and I had honestly found myself getting too busy to, to find the kind of time that I could. And so I've, I've been reading a lot more. 
The other one is playing golf. I think along with everyone else, I've managed to find some time to get on the golf course occasionally. Nice. Um, so really enjoyed being able to get outside and be, you know, socially distanced from people, but still have that interaction with others outside, uh, which, which has been a lot of fun. We'll have to get on the golf course then. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope that, you know, there's some essence of this connecting outside with people that can continues on post pandemic, like, yeah. you know, I, I enjoy going for a walk with my friends now, whereas before we would have been sitting on a patio having wine, which is also fun, or that's also outdoors, but sitting inside having wine. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like yeah. that. What, um, um, sorry, what's what, uh, what kind of books are you reading right now? Leon? I, I uh, well, currently I'm, I'm reading, shoot, the new Michael Lewis book. I should remember the name, Premonition. Okay, yeah. Um, about the COVID response. Yeah. Huge Michael Lewis fan, automatically read all of his books when they come out. Um, I, and I tend, so what I like to do is I switch fiction, nonfiction, fiction, nonfiction. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the nonfiction book I'm reading right now. Fiction-wise, um, I am reading, what am I reading right now? I'm reading Matterhorn by... I should re I should remember his name. Uh, it's a Vietnam War novel. It's 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 great, and I should remember his name, but I I don't right now. We can put it in the show notes. That's what people do on podcasts, yes. right? Dan Dan, put that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so, uh, who is a mentor you had early on and set you on your perhaps set you on your career path? Sure. Why don't and you, you did send these questions ahead of time, so I should have better answers. But unfortunately, I only just glanced over them this morning. Uh, when, when I think when I think to my life, I have I have uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put down three big mentors if I can go through really yeah. quickly three mentors. The uh, first is my father, uh, amazing dad. I grew up on a farm, like I said, so I worked side by side with my dad from when I was a little kid, um, and he taught me how to build things and fix things and and think creatively. Um, you know, he, he passed away in an accident a few years ago, and so much, much younger than he should have, but huge influence in my life. The second one is an uncle of mine uh, who, I, who I worked, when I said I was roofing for five years, I worked with, with my uncle as a roofer. And just the example of how he was a leader to his employees and demonstrated uh, through, by example how to lead people, is, it's stuck with me uh, forever and, and will forever. And then in my, in my professional career, uh, Bruce Johnson was my mentor when I started here at RJC Victoria. He retired a few years ago. He taught me just absolutely everything I know about engineering and, and how to think and how to work through problems and how to be collaborative, um, all, of, all of those things. So those, those three people are the, are the biggest sort of work-related influences in my life. How's that? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what do you see? Oh, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Buy real estate or Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, <one of> <laughs> yeah. Bitcoin. Yes. Oh, real estate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I actually, I bought, I bought my first house when I was 19. Um, and I, I actually bought it off the city that I lived in. They had annexed a piece of the backyard to build an arena. Um, and it was, it was tenanted out and it was in rough, rough shape, but I was able to afford it. And, and my, my, uh, my fiance at the time and myself fixed up that house and, and made it beautiful. And then I, I sold that house to go to school. Um, and you know, I don't obviously don't regret my engineering education and the career that it's put me on. But, uh, you know, I, we probably would have done better for ourselves financially had we just bought a few houses and fixed them up, you know, in the late 90s. But yeah. say Hindsight, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you see as the biggest change needed in construction and design? And how do you see that playing out over the next 10 years? That's, that's a good question I, that I don't really have a great answer for. I, I think it's going to be more incremental than it will be wholesale. Mm -hmm. I see a huge opportunity for machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, as much as I want to keep my job, 90% of what structural engineers do is interpretation of the code to make, you know, to achieve the architectural vision. And, and Nobody really wants to spend all of their time sizing beams and columns. We want to be thinking creativity, creatively about how to how to make things work. And I think that the the power 
we're too niche of an industry for, for, for organizations to spend the kind of resources it, it takes to, to get the software and the, and the hardware to the place that, that we need to be. But I do think that we're probably a decade away from a lot of the work that we do. Even the work you do as planners, you know, when you, when you think about the constraints on a site and the zoning regulations and, you know, there's, there's a lot of spreadsheet inputs that software could sift through uh, with machine learning and just you know, give you very quick feedback on a site in terms of what, what the optimal use and development is there. And so I, I do see a lot of opportunity for machine learning and artificial intelligence. My son is always, you know, talking to me about what the real differences are between those two things, and I probably forget. Um, but I think that there is a big opportunity for, for um, you know, offloading a lot of the thinking that we do to machines. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. I think there's there's definitely room for, you know, bylaw code review that sort of thing that can be easily done through a machine machine learning program for sure yeah I've, i was reading an article the other day that was saying there's a jurisdiction in china where the building officials don't don't review the plans they they use the the designers have to submit the bim model and their software sifts through the bim model to make sure they're meeting exiting and limiting distances and heights and all of those things it's it's all automated and i i'm that does not surprise me at all i i know that's going to come here you should probably send me that article i, I feel like that's a rabbit hole i need to go down I, I feel like i feel like leon like this is this this is this is another uh episode shaping up here on machine learning and ai and maybe get your son on board here yes your son i think Rube, we should yeah Rube. so my, my son is 18 he's going to be Rubik's Cube, yeah. So he's he's a three-time Guinness World Champion unofficially. We had we do not have that approved from Guinness yet. So unofficially, he's broken three Guinness World Records. Um, he's headed to the University of Waterloo in fall to study uh, software engineering. So so uh, yeah, he he will do great things. Perfect. Thanks so much for for participating and yeah. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much, Leon. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed episode two of the Sandpaper podcast and our conversation with Leon Plett. If you did, like and subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and all of the socials.